Welcome to Holyrood Unguided, the Neil Anderson of political podcasts. Season 6, episode 12. I am your host, David McClement, broadcasting from the Blantyre Free State. And this week we have a bit of a change to the regular format. We'll be having a kind of end of year review with some other members of the Ungag Collective, interspersed with a few unhinged rants from me about some recent news that got under my skin. So now that you're all thoroughly tantalised with that description, let's start with a rant, I think. And let's get ungagged. It's a while, and it was nice, nice to hear you smile. Dream a dream, cause you'll never die. The stars will never overtake the sky. Life has its turns, and it takes a while. And it was nice, nice to hear you smile. This first topic is simply titled Starmer Loves Thatcher. Sir Keir Starmer was branded a Margaret Thatcher fanboy by a Tory MP after he lavished praise on Margaret Thatcher for effecting meaningful change in Britain. Writing in the Sunday Telegraph, the Labour leader said Thatcher had set loose her natural entrepreneurialism during her time as Prime Minister. The remarks were described as an insult to working-class Scots by a former Labour Labour MSP, Neil Findlay. Sir Keir's column was also criticised by the First Minister of Scotland, who said what Thatcher did to mining and industrial communities was not entrepreneurialism, it was vandalism. Starmer praising Thatcher is an insult to those communities in Scotland and across the UK who still bear the scars of her disastrous policies. So does the Prime Minister share my boundless joy that on the road to Damascus, and in recognition of her great heritage and all that she achieved, another, another fanboy, another fanboy has joined her great belief, the leader of the opposition. And that's the thing with Thatcher. She isn't just this historical figure. Her legacy lives on today, very much so, within the Tory party, within UK politics, within British society. And to have the leader of the Labour Party praising her like that is a complete insult to all the communities that suffered under her government. So many of her current problems can be traced back to actions that she initiated. She ripped up that post-war consensus that had led to unprecedented rises in living standards for working class people 30 to 40 years. She introduced the first seeds of NHS privatisation with the introduction of the internal market to the NHS. She introduced Section 28, which meant thousands of young LGBT people grew up in a situation of institutional homophobia and now we're watching that similar moral panic be repeated now through transphobia. The housing crisis that's happening now and has been going on for a long time was precipitated by her introducing the right to buy. Now a lot of people 
working class people done well individually out of that. I don't criticise people individually that, that made that choice. But it was devastating to social housing stocks. And social housing in the UK has never recovered from all the stock that they lost during that time. And of course, we can't forget that she gave us a poll tax. A horrific, regressive tax... And although working class communities did rally and forced it to be abolished, we've ended up, we ended up with only slightly more palatable council tax that was cobbled together in the back of an envelope by John Major in the wake of the poll tax being defeated. And of course an inflexibility over the status of Irish Republican prisoners led to 10 men losing their lives in a hunger strike. But Keir Starmer thinks she's great. You know, it's, it really says something when John McTiernan even criticised uh, this contribution from Starmer. John McTiernan is a figure in... The hard right of the Labour Party, I think, is generally supportive of Starmer and he described it as an unnecessary article by Keir Starmer and an unnecessary nod to Thatcher. He said that he didn't think a Labour leader wanting to be Prime Minister needed to bend the knee to anybody in the Tory party. But of course that's what so many Labour leaders think they have to do now. Maybe not necessarily bend the knee to the Tory party, but certainly bend the knee to right-wing newspaper editors to moneyed interests to billionaires and that's what Starmer's doing now it's straight out of the new Labour playbook both Tony Blair and even Gordon Brown who's seen as a, a more traditional Labour figure both of them as Prime Ministers sought to sort of ally themselves with Thatcher and portray themselves as sort of continuing on in her footsteps I think they both invited her to Downing Street and at this stage Keir Starmer is just looking like more and more like a new Labour tribute act. You know, Peter Mandelson, who's an advisor to Gordon Brown, advisor to Tony Blair, and is now advising Keir Starmer, has always been hailed as a shrewd political operator, like the master of the dark arts. But he, the right is, he's got one idea, and now he's just repeating it. 30 years, yeah, 30 years, almost 30 years, um, since the first time he did it with Tony Blair, and we're just rinsing and repeat. And at least at this stage, and he's, Career Blair was still pretty popular as leader of the opposition. Keir Starmer is nowhere near that level of popularity. We've seen it recently, most recently in relation to his uh, inability to call for a ceasefire in Gaza and his support for Israel. The the guy is at Tony Blair levels up in popularity, but it took Tony Blair years as Prime Minister before he reached this kind of level of hatred that was directed towards him. And I'm, I'm all for a bit of hatred towards people that deserve it, and I would say they both do. Tony Blair led a illegal war that killed hundreds of thousands of people, and Keir Starmer's cheering on a genocide right in front of her eyes. But why is it that you can never hear about a Tory leader of the opposition feel obliged to play at praise like Clement Attlee or Harold Wilson? And I can't help but think it's because a lot of people in charge of the UK Labour fundamentally believe Britain's a Tory country, and the only way to convince voters to vote for you as if you make them think you're a Tory as well. But this just that just leads to a self fulfilling prophecy. Because if you can if if you don't think you're right, if you think that Tories are right and tell people the Tories are right, how are you going to convince anybody otherwise? And there might be points in history where that might work temporarily, but if you just perpetuate the idea that Tory ideas are the right ideas, eventually they'll go back to the the real Tories. There was some more comments from Labour figures critical of this. Monica Lennon, Scottish Labour MSP, said that Thatcher's legacy still haunts us, with many problems facing the UK today rooted in political and economic decisions made in the 80s. Whole communities destroyed, turbocharged inequality and mass unemployment. Lessons still need to be learned. And the heat even gets so bad that Anna Sarwar, who, who came out and said, 
that Margaret Thatcher destroyed communities across the country and that she decimated Scotland. Well, here's an idea, Anas. Why don't you have a word with your boss? Tell him that. And ask yourself, why your boss, the guy you work for, why is he praising a woman that you think decimated your country? You know, make it make sense to me. Tonight I'm being joined by the other VW on Gags Warrior Poet, it's Guy's Mammy, it's Val Waldron. Good evening David, I'm glad that um, Sky woke me up from sitting a wee nap there, but uh, here we are. When you messaged me, I was confused with your um, emoji, when you said that you'd fell and then you'd be sleeping oh, emoji, so yeah. for a second I thought you'd like fell down the stairs or fell over or something like that, I was like oh my god, oh. like <laughs> it's alright, you don't need to rush onto a podcast, maybe you should seek medical attention. <laughs> <laughs> the joys of a new phone is poked in the first wee thing that came up. But anyway, we're here and we're nearly at Christmas. But um, yeah, nice to have a wee chat about something else. Yep. So how's 2023 been for you? Um, well, it's been mixed, I would say. Um, lots of good things. I'll, I'll get you through the, the bones first. A few health issues, mostly around teeth and gums. Um, loss of a very good friend, unfortunately. But getting through all that stuff and some really nice travel things, I've probably bust my carbon footprint allowance, whatever, for a wee while now. But um, really nice to get abroad and do some things to follow up my, my hobbies, my um, fiddling away with a band to Germany and stuff. Did a, a, a Kaylee and a couple of gigs in Kiel, which is really nice. Uh-huh. And Kiel, did you say? Kiel in Germany, yeah. That's in the north of Germany, isn't it? That is in the north. We've been before. I, re- some- I, re- I remember that from, um, I think it was Standard, Standard Grid History and the Kiel Canal. I remember them talking yeah. about that. Yeah, it coincided with some huge um, northern European boating festival, apparently. It was boiling hot. It was lovely, very lively, so that was really nice. And then back to Italy, to Barga. We were the Scots-Italians reading some poetry, which was lovely. So all the, all, the, all the hobbies coming out and some walking in the Alps, some nice um, bucket list stuff. Nearly everything accompanied by terrible, mostly Ryanair issues and delays and problems and rip-offs, etc. But so it'd be nice to have a wee, a wee break from going abroad next year anyway. So, but yeah, yeah, interesting year. Mm-hmm. All the criticisms of Ryanair, the only, delays are the one thing that I've never really had with them. Um, oh, is that right? Well, I'll just give you a wee warning to everybody out there. Be very careful if you use a shortened name, such as I do, like Val, that you've got the same name on your boarding pass because um, I had Valerie on my passport and it cost me an extra £220 in the end, um, plus a few more extra hassles and a feeling as though I was getting sent to prison by some of the people in the ground as well. Not very nice. I had a similar experience, that, but it actually was... I was panicking before it, but it actually was fine. I was going on a stag night and the guy that was organising it is the one that booked the flights and arranged all that. Now, my second name is McClement, as everybody listening might be aware. And it's spelled M-C-C-L-E. But when he handed me the boarding pass, I noticed one of the C's was missing. So it's M-C-L-E-M-O-N-T. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a disaster. It's Ryanair, you hear the stories. I thought they were going to want hundreds to change it. And the guy was saying, well, we just chance it. And I was like, I don't know about that. Maybe I think we'd be safer just fessing up when we get in. So went in, and a woman took the took it, looked at it, and said, "Oh, 
we'll, we'll sort that and print it out a new one. Wow. I was talking to the, the, the guy at the other desk about what happened, and he went, did, did she print you another one? And I was like, aye. And he went, she didn't charge you, did she? And I was like, no, no, she didn't. He was getting angry on my behalf if something that didn't happen. Very lucky there, I, because they were picking on people that had, um, I mean, some people were wearing backpacks like elephants, but if uh, they got away with it, but anybody pulling a case on wheels was getting sent away and charged as well. They were having a, a few days of it, so... Yeah, Aye. that's that's the one I, I remember clocking that, that if you had a backpack, you didn't need to worry about them kind of looking too closely because mm-hmm. they kept an eye on people that had the, the trolley cases sort of thing. Yeah, so there we are, the bad and the good. What about news stories? We are a topical news podcast, so what's the main news story that you remember most from 2023? Yeah, it's funny this one because, you know, that's ever kind of read any of my writing. We're on gag to see I've got this kind of eagle eye for the bigger picture. And it's maybe not so much the what news story. It's just a general trend that has really hit me this year. It's like the genie is out the bottle. And if you want to focus in on something today, I noticed as others did, that um, there will be no appeal against the um, Section 35 about um, annulling the um, Gender Recognition Act that was passed last year. It just feels like another step in, another step towards, if you want to be kind of dramatic about it, fascism, if you like, or just kind of handing something to Westminster in a plate, just things getting a wee bit out of control. And it's like during the last year, I suppose we've seen seen the things happening. Like that was that's one thing, and you know, like we're on a slippery slope where anything goes. Really, you know, there was also the warnings around the what do you call it, the, the return, the bottle returns. What do you call that? The, bottle deposit scheme. The bottle deposit scheme. And just this feeling that. Mm, you know, this is not going our way. But also just this openly populist agenda coming up everywhere. Our cute and cuddly um, Radio Scotland and a lot of our news outlets are just set up this like, irate of populist rubbish against the Scottish government quite often unopposed. Um, and, and like, you know, OK, I think obviously we're all going to be thinking a lot about what's been happening with Nicola Sturgeon, you know, just going for her, basically. We don't know the outcome of that yet, but I think when they can make, demonise Jason Leach, that's quite an issue, really, isn't it? So things just seem to have kind of opened up. And then on a more sinister scale, I suppose we've seen more arrests, at d- demos, stuff like that. A few years ago, you know, people had been arrested. It would have been a massive thing, but now it's just happening all the time, mainly down south, but it's happening a lot. Uh, and then, it's, I suppose, just on a more global scale, just there's no international checks and boundaries. And we don't you know, obviously, Gaza's the main one, that all the vetoes and stuff. Nobody's seen it. Just everything's kind of going out of control. It isn't very Christmassy or very appealing when you think of peace and love and joy to all men, but, all men, but it's quite, it's worrying. It just looks as though the genie's right out the, out the bottle. And I suppose it could culminate next year in a US president operating from jail or something ridiculous like that. Have you got any political predictions for 2024? Well, do you want me to try and narrow it down a wee bit? That went all over the world, didn't it? Yes, for one event, and there's a wee soaring there. But um, obviously, um, doesn't it take a genius to know we're going to have a general election? We don't know when. And it looks as though there's going to be a Labour win, but I'm kind of predicting 
that can turn in a sixpence. It might not be such a, a big win as predicted. We've had a lot in the news lately about you know, the COVID inquiry, a lot of rubbish coming up that is putting people off the Tories, but things can change quite a lot. And it didn't also it didn't go down all that well in Starmer. Stammer's comments about about Thatcher, you know, you could see the polls shifting a wee bit quite quickly. So yeah, it'll be a Labour win. In Scotland, oh, I think we'll be running for our lives to try and keep Labour at bay. I think that's, you know, that's quite a, an uphill push, but I would not like to predict that one at all. I don't think it's going to be an easy year. I wish I could say something optimistic. Can you say, can you think of anything where things may be? I mean, we should be optimistic about the Tories being voted out of power, but yeah. such as the the prospect of a Starmer-led Labour Party in power, it's difficult to get too excited. It's it's hard to hard to imagine they can be worse than the Tories. They will probably be marginally better, but marginally better than one of the worst governments we've had to experience is is barely anything to be excited about. So I wish I could be more optimistic, but I'm afraid I, I'm, I'm kind of mm-hmm. a similar viewpoint to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I found myself at one point not so very long ago. When Biden was, you know, full, you know, full support for Israel, thinking, Chris, could Trump be much worse? And I had to pull myself back from that one because the man's crazy. You know, we really do not want the most evil, horrible comic book character back again. And we do not want anybody operating from jail if he ever gets that far. But it's, it's scary stuff. It's, it's pretty yeah, scary. I mean, it's it's kind of what we're just talking about in the UK government is quite, there's a symmetry there in America because, you know, you've got Biden who pursuing quite a right-wing foreign policy that's not that out of step with what traditionally the United States has done. But, you know, the, the only alternative apparently is like an absolutely crazed lunatic like Donald Trump. You know, it's hard to be excited about Biden, but looking at the alternative, it's... It's just it's an indictment of the political systems on both sides of the Atlantic that they keep throwing up such horrendous options, like quite literally like the, the lesser of two evils. And it's like mm-hmm. for once it would be nice if we didn't have to vote for evil at all. Be quite a novel I concept. I, I just don't know what's happened. I mean, of all the, the humans on the planet, why have we got these people? And I, and I mean, even in our own country, it's brilliant. I'm so glad that um, Booms of Yusuf get in. My God, the alternative was not great. But I was like one good person, you know. Like, how could we not? Maybe, is it so daunting for good progressives on this planet? I mean, look at what happened. I've forgotten their own name already. The Zealand Prime Minister. Is her name not Yusinda? Is that Arden, was it? That's it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there are good people. We know there are good people in politics, but it's it's hard and I have a lot of sympathy for them. It's quite a challenge. But there's a hell of a I think we have to keep remembering there's an awful lot more of us than there are of them. And, and I think, yeah, I'm going to be a wee bit optimistic here. I mean, amidst all the horrible, oh, just unbelievably unspeakable things happening in Gaza at the moment, public are out en masse. Every week or most weeks, people are responding to that. And, you know, the masses are in the right side of history. And even people like Starmer and Biden are watching their language a wee bit. And okay, they're maybe sort of, it's like they've had their quota of civilian deaths, enough is enough. And that's not, not a good thing. But at least, you know, they can't go on saying, well, pause for a bit or whatever. It just can't go on like that. So, yeah, people power, I think that's about the only optimistic thing I think we've got at the moment. Let's move on to something a bit more light-hearted. Yeah, so, yeah. 
what, what's your favourite Christmas food? What's, oh, what are you looking forward well, to talking into in Christmas Day? Well, it'll be down to me because I'll be making the not Wellington for the family. Being, uh, well, it's a vegan thing, but this will be a... Um, so since we've been making not Wellington since the 70s, I think, the 70s or 80s, when it was fashionable then, when Wellingtons have come back into fashion again. So, so um, yeah, we'll be we'll be having that. My wife loves Wellington. Right. What kind I mean, of Wellington? <laughs> uh, beef Wellington usually. Um, yeah. But we've got a venison Wellington because we couldn't find any beef. It's quite hard to find. I think I saw a mushroom Wellington somewhere. but mm-hmm. Lidl have got some interesting looking well, I think that I think that's where she got mm-hmm. that. I was yeah. in Asda and I couldn't see any at all. Yeah, and Mike will be making. My husband will be making a nice frangipan thing, so that'll be nice. But I, I can't say I have um, deprived myself. I've just helped. Well, others have helped me put away a big tray of tablet, which is something that I've been making for social occasions lately. So I you did. posted a picture of that, and I immediately messaged you just to let you know what a big fan <laughs> I am of tablet. So. Well, there's five bits left, but I won't taunt you with some. If I could shove one through the screen, I would. But, well, um, it's my birthday next month, so if you're making another batch, you know, I'll no say no. Right, okay. If you're anywhere in the area, we'll get you some. But, what, yeah. about, what about your favourite drink to toast in the new year? I'm boring, boring, boring. I'll just I'd go for Prosecco. And I'm also a wee bit, uh, a, a little bit cynical about the new year, I guess, you know, maybe parted out. But then um, often there's nothing much happening anyway because I don't have one huge sort of like cohesive group of friends that does something. But the band that I'm in, they were all going off to a this year and I'd rather be on the other side. I quite like sitting watching other people do the work. So I actually turned it down. I thought, no, we sat home. Last year, husband had COVID and we spent the whole period in separate rooms and quite yeah. time on together this year. So. Well, I'm working at New Year, so... Oh, are you I'm working at the shift? It'll be a soft drink if I toast it, if I toast mm-hmm. at all. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I've been working the last five or... This might be my sixth New Year in a row I've been working. Do you know about um, Are you okay with that? You get a choice? Given the choice, I'd rather have Christmas off with the kids. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I was never a big fan of New Year, but um, I'm, I do find I'm starting to miss it a wee bit now that it's getting to fifth and sixth years of no being able to mm-hmm. celebrate it. So maybe next year I'll be in a different situation. You're bidding early, but you'll be, uh, your kids will be well wound up now for Santa, are they? Oh, they've been absolutely wild. Um, mm-hmm. A couple of them have just gave up sleeping the last two nights. Mm-hmm. It's okay. just been me and my wife are frayed at the edges with them. So hopefully well, they settled in. What about the wee boy, Matthew? Is he, is he, does he know about it all yet? Yeah, well, he, his nursery had a party today, so he got to meet Santa. And apparently oh, he was ter- terrified. Oh, we, yeah. He was running and hiding and wouldn't even look mm-hmm. in Santa's direction, according to the staff. So It's the white gloves. I see the little kids with these white gloves round about them. I think, oh, that's no right, what shame. Anyway, thanks for joining us, Val. And yeah, pleasure, David. Merry yeah. Christmas and a happy new year you, when it comes. You too, you too. The next topic in my agenda this evening is the Elgin Marbles, or the Parthenon Marbles. Diplomatic row has broken out between the British and Greek governments over the Parthenon sculptures, also known as the Elgin Marbles. Removed from Greece in the 19th century by British diplomat Lord Elgin, who later sold them to the British government, the Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis 
was due to meet Rishi Sunak in London, but number 10 cancelled the meeting at the last minute. He told reporters he was deeply disappointed by the abrupt cancellation and rejected an alternative meeting with the Deputy Prime Minister. The cancellation came a day after Mr Mitsotakis told the BBC that the marble should be returned as having some of the artefacts in London and the rest in Athens was like cutting the Mona Lisa in half. Before I get started on this, I want to make a confession. I was way older than I care to admit before I realised that the Elgin marbles were statues and not actual marbles that you play with, like a the marble game, like the wee balls basically. I'm not sure when when it exactly that dawned on me, but I was a bit embarrassed to think, and I was just glad that I never actually said it out loud. Although now I'm saying it out loud in a podcast, so I don't really know what the point of that is. The main point is, the British government should be returning these uh, artefacts. The British Empire took them, took different artefacts from all over the world. And it was because of this superiority complex that they thought all these cultures were backwards and they couldn't be trusted with their own cultural heritage. And to be honest, when when you dig into some of the statements for the government about this, some of the statements for the British Museum, I think they still think that. They just, they, they know now Notice say that bit out loud, but deep down there is still this arrogance that they have that they still have this idea that it, they're safer with them because they are civilized, and by extension, they are implying that these other that other cultures, other peoples are not civilized. I mean, to me, the the legal arguments are relevant. I mean, the UK government's position is that Lord Elgin obtained them legally and sold them to the government. Now, that is disputed. Greece was controlled by the Ottoman Empire at the time, and the modern Turkish government, that's a sort of successor state to the Ottoman Empire, didn't, has never been able to find a record of the sale in any of their archives. But even if there was a bit of paper, would, would a British lord probably bribing some low-level Ottoman official really make this okay? I mean, he says he was trying to save them, but one of the ships transporting them sank. I mean, it was a miracle that they were, rec- they were recovered. I mean, these things could have been lost could have been lost to humanity forever, and that all because of the benevolent, benevolent Brits that were convinced that they were saving them for posterity. You would think that the UK government would be trying to make friends at the moment. You know, they've alienated everybody over Brexit, but here they are, getting into a spat with Greece over some statues. You know, wouldn't it be much better to make a gesture of reconciliation, to hand these back, and to build a new relationship, a, a more positive relationship with an EU member state, since Britain is a bit popular in Europe as a fart in a spacesuit. But the UK government just can't seem to get out of its own way. You know, they have this arrogant mindset that they can't shake. And a lot of the a lot of the stuff around Brexit was delusions of empire that some people just seem to want to hold on onto. And I must admit though, you've got to admire the brass neck to rename the statues after the guy that stole them. I mean that is the most British thing I've ever heard. Our sponsor this week is Sense of Nature Pet Service, based in Central Scotland. Sense of Nature gives you a hands-on, personalised experience with a variety of exciting creatures. From snakes and skunks to tarantulas and turtles, Sense of Nature has something for everyone. They offer sensory sessions, one-to-one group sessions, educational encounters for children of all ages, and they are available for private events upon inquiry. Animal welfare is at the forefront of everything they do, and if appropriate, a risk assessment can be carried out at no additional cost prior to your booking. To get 5% off your next booking with Sense of Nature, quote Hollywood Ungagged 5 at time of booking. To contact Sense of Nature, you can do so by email 
on sense.of.natureinquiries at outlook.com. You can also find them on most social media platforms by searching for Sense of Nature. The next contributor this evening, journalist, activist, Republican socialist, and Dundee's favoured son, Connor Beaton. I've had more time, I would, I would have added um, mulled wine enthusiast. <laughs> I'll get to that. Thanks, David. Hey, Connor, how are you doing? How's things? Yeah, pretty good. I'm looking uh, massively forward to the year ending. I've got one half day of work left, but before uh, I'm off till the 4th of January and I couldn't be happier about it. I could all fly in. So the first question was, how's 2023 been personally? But it's sounding it's not positive then if, you, if you're looking forward to ending so much. Yeah, nothing actually wrong with the year. I'd actually say it's probably been a pretty unremarkable year for me personally. Um, I think it's just every time it gets to this time of the year, I just can't. It's Everything's downhill. You can't look forward to anything more than the ending. Probably the most significant thing I did this year was the drive. So I've been taking lessons pretty much every week since April. And I've not sat my test yet, but it's going to be early in the new year, basically, as soon as the DBLA can actually find an examiner for me. Feeling pretty good about that. So is this your first attempt? Yeah. Uh, so I've never driven at all before uh, I took my first lesson in April. I feel like age of 27, probably about time that I got there. And my partner's been pushing me like mad for, for years now to learn to drive. I'm pretty happy that I'm finally just about there. And I had a test originally scheduled for October and it got delayed because there was just no chance of me passing it. But I feel pretty confident now. Well, I hear all the best people take five five attempts. I only learned in 2015, so I was like in my 30s, so... Uh, you'll you'll be ahead of me if you're successful uh, yeah, next year. But I did originally take lessons when I was 17 for like a year. Mm. Sat my test three times and gave up. My, my heart was never really in it. It was everybody else around about me kept saying, oh, you're 17, you need to learn to drive. So I've really resented getting up my Saturday morning to sit my, take my lesson every week. And I never really particularly liked driving. So after the third attempt, I was not going to persevere. Well, see, I'm not keen on becoming a motorist. I never really wanted to become a motorist. And I'm still a public transport enthusiast, but it's just a, yeah, an unfortunate reality that there are places where you really need a, a car to be connected. And, uh, you know, we've been thinking in terms of like every time we've moved house and we, we rent, so it's inevitable we're going to move again. It's such a nightmare if you can't drive. If you're thinking about going on holiday, just doing a, a weekend break, it's a nightmare if you can't drive. And even, you know, Looking at this winter in particular, how much the public transport network, including especially the trains, fell apart because there was a bit of rain. You know, with the climate crisis, there's only, been, only going to be more of that. So, yeah, I'm not enthusiastic about it, but I am going to be become a motorist. It's funny you should say that about moving. That was actually the reason that motivated me to finally pass my test. Oh, yeah. My flat that I lived in before I lived here was in a main street, so it was in a bus route, and there was a train station at the end of the road, so it was perfect. So I had yeah. no reason to to uh, drive really but when we were moving house we had a lot of already a lot of sort of things we needed like mom was moving into us for caring reasons so we needed like things that were appropriate for that and we're thinking well kids so maybe a garden now would be uh, good so it was just like one extra thing for me to then be putting my hand up at then going oh remember it needs to be near a bus stop yeah well, to be honest the amount of I, I walk to the shops and uh, have to lug back all of our big shopping in one go and uh, I'll look forward to eventually being able to pick up shopping by car. I tend to do that now, um, but if you don't pass your test, have a baby because the buggies are, like, brilliant. <laughs> so, 
There's always yeah, options. I'll fix that to the half. Particularly since the self-scanners. Thank you, man. You just scan it and put it straight in the bottom of the buggy and that's you. I'll get a comment for something who's saying, oh, you should, you should boycott these scanners or take people's jobs. You have to support workers, but just pretending technology doesn't move on, doesn't work either. And to be honest, there's always workers standing around having to help people because nobody can use the scanners, right? So I don't really feel as if it's caused a huge reduction in supermarket staff. Well, like Aldi, Aldi near me now has uh, self-checkout. And I think it's brilliant because you can actually get kind of a relaxed experience. You can take a lot longer to hang your stuff when you have it all kind of thrown at you in rapid succession. So Yeah, and it's great for introverts everywhere because you don't need to have an awkward social interaction. So got to practice somewhere. In terms of news stories, what would you say is the news story you most remember from 2023? Well, I mean, I think the news story that I'm going to remember most for years to come is going to be Gaza, obviously, what's been happening there. And I think the Scottish dimension to that, that will always stick out in my mind is Nadia Al-Nakla's parents being under bombardment in Deir al-Bala, seeing the kind of blow-by-blow updates in the the Scottish and in the UK press. I think for two reasons. One, because Nadia, uh, I've known in Dundee for uh, a long time before she became the first minister's wife because um, she was really active in the Yes campaign in 2014. And of course, she's a local councillor now as well. So I think that probably brought home for a lot of people just, you know, how bad it was in Gaza and, and still is. And then also the fact that uh, she's the first minister's wife and she still can't do anything about her family being out there. I think just underlined how powerless everyone felt, but even the people who ostensibly have a bit of power probably felt. So yeah, I think that'll stand out to me. I, I'm kind of, I feel, I fear I'm going to be guilty of like recentism here and that obviously that's a big news story that's still ongoing. And there's a lot of stuff probably towards the start of the year that I've already forgotten. But I think that probably says a lot for why this is going to be the thing that I'll remember. Yeah, definitely recently, but recency bias, because when I ask people this question, nobody's mentioned Thor the walrus that appeared in January in the British shores. <laughs> or Thor. the coronation, for God's sakes, which... Uh, well, that's it. We the, did we have a change Did we change a prime minister? I think we, I feel as if we do that every year now. Annual a, new, a new monarch and a new first minister. It has been quite a mm-hmm. a big year, considering there's not really been... There has been any elections. I'm not going to make a fool of myself. No, so considering there's not I mean, been like big elections... There's been big changes. Yeah. Well, I think technically Charles, you know, he became king last year. So the coronation was just really the the pomp and everything that goes along with it. And I don't I don't think that will be to me an exceptionally memorable thing, even though I, I really enjoyed the little renaissance of republicanism that was inspired by Charles. And of course, uh, you and I were both at that uh, Colton Hill rally that I thought was really good. And that, you know, certainly a kind of a political highlight from the year, but uh, I don't believe in thinking of this as the year of Charles, <laughs> so I don't think it'll be the one that, that lingers in my memory. There is, there, it's, it's funny the things that stick in your mind or kind of trigger something. See, whenever mm. there's like a lawyer on and they're referred to as a KC, I find it very <laughs> jarring. It just, it's just, I don't know how long it take to used to, but it just doesn't sound right. QC just <laughs> seems to have a more um, natural ring to it, but I mean, I work as a legal affairs journalist, so I see the word KC, you know, very regularly. And still this week, I saw it in a headline and I thought there was a typo and it was meant to say KFC. But um, getting back to Gaza, yes. Every time it comes up, I feel like in a weird sense of guilt because I feel Mm. as if, as a kind of political person on the left, we all sort of forgot about the Palestinians. I remember when I got into politics 20 years ago, you know, 
the the Palestinian plight was always not far from the surface. Every meeting you spoke to, uh, you went to, there was always somebody with Palestinian scarf and things like that. And it was just always a, a political thing that rumbled away in the background. And at some point it just went away. And, you know, there's guilt because it's like the, their suffering sort of became tolerable. And so it's became very jarring to it suddenly erupt the way it has. And I felt it as well watching when you were, Hamza Yusuf was speaking in the parliament and there was a personal connection that you spoke about. And it sort of felt very like a horrible metaphor for Scotland's situation. That as first man as a Scotland, he really, this, the limit to his power was, was to beg louder. You know, he didn't really have any leverage beyond, you know, making as strong a public appeal as he could. I think to me, it's, it's been useful. I feel like useful is actually maybe a kind of a, not a good word to use, but it's, it's underlined for me the importance of independence in the context of the Labour Party coming back and, you know, people losing faith that there will be a referendum because of how intransigent the UK government has been. It's been really useful to have this reminder of no matter, like the most radical unionist vision for Scotland, where it's the most devolution of power, etc. There's always the two things that they say can safely stay at Westminster, it's foreign affairs and defence. And I can't think of an event of the last few years that hasn't illustrated better why I don't want foreign affairs and defence to be staying in Westminster where there's two parties equally committed to supporting Israel as they do the most heinous uh, war crimes against a civilian population. And so that's it's been a really good reminder of why independence has to remain this really important political objective for us. And the other thing you, you mentioned there about um, Palestine solidarity uh, kind of retreating from the mainstream of the last few years, I think I actually feel, and, and some people may dis- disagree with me, there's been a lot of parochialism in the last few years around Palestine, where because of the Jeremy Corbyn leadership of the Labour Party and the way in which there was all these discussions around Palestine and also around anti-Semitism on the left and everything that came out of that, there was this whole period whereby if you looked at local Palestine solidarity groups, a lot of them were doing things like public meetings to talk about the internal disciplinary processes of the Labour Party. And I think that was... that. You know, I, I just don't see how that was useful for building a solidarity movement because I think most people don't really care about that. And I think most people who really want to do something uh, that meaningfully supports people in Palestine don't want to come to a meeting to hear about how some people have been kicked out of the Labour Party, perhaps unjustly, perhaps justly. It, it just feels like a distraction. And I think, you know, it's been really good to see people out in these big mass mobilizations, uh, which, by the way, I think are only possible because of like the cumulative political education of all the demonstrations that have taken place over the last few decades. Um, you know, we came into the conflict, we came into October 7th with there being so many people in Scotland who already had a really, really good understanding of the issues in Palestine. And that was only because of the work the movement had done. But I think it's really good that we've got this kind of orientation now towards building pressure on the UK government, building international pressure against Israel building the, the boycott movement, which is still this really important component. I think that's, that's that's really useful, and I'm glad that we can kind of get away from the kind of internal party, factional disputes that were just serving as this massive distraction for the Palestine movement. Yeah, the I totally agree about the political education, because you see it online, and there is a kind of body of people out there that I, th- I think are genuine in their approach that they don't really think this really started there was anything before October 7th and a lot of people will be disingenuous about that but I think there is genuinely people out there 
they had no idea about this situation until October 7th, and that's a starting point. But like you said, there's a lot more people out there that do have a more rounded uh, view of the situation and, and know better than that, uh, and, and, and is able to put it in its proper historical context. But unfortunately... We'll probably be sitting here. We could have this conversation next year as well because it's such an intractable situation. I'm joining you in the sort of negativity. I don't usually need encouragement. I'm always getting into trouble for, for particularly for ending podcasts and downers. But um, <laughs> there we go. Something a bit more. System. Let's go a bit more lighthearted. Now. So, what, what would you say is your favorite uh, favorite food at Christmas to look forward to? What do you like getting tucked into? Um, if I'm having a like a traditional Christmas dinner. So are you a vegan favorite. or vegetarian before? No, 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 no. I, I eat everything. Um, it's always good to check in life wing circles because yeah, well, I say that but basically all of my basically all of our friends um, are either vegan or vegetarian. I'm in a tiny minority of my own friend circle, and I eat meat. And it even you know impacts things like I was thinking of getting a barbecue. Uh, someone to get a barbecue, and my partner keeps pointing out that if we got a barbecue and we invited people around, you know, we would be ourselves relegated to like a little disposable thing to keep all the meat all the meat off the main barbecue for everyone else so not the most appealing but yeah sorry christmas dinner if it's a traditional christmas dinner uh the, the bit i look forward to the most it's actually the parsnips i really love like honey roasted parsnips fantastic and i feel like it's not something i eat any other time of the year so that would be my go-to but i think most most years actually it's un I wouldn't say it's untypical, but I normally don't have a, like a traditional Christmas meal with a, a bird. I think more often than not, I've ended up having something um, kind of unorthodox. One one year, actually, um, my mum bought like a raclette machine out of Lidl, and we all had raclette for Christmas dinner, and it was actually not bad. I don't even know what that is. It's like um, so like raclette is like a type of cheese, uh, and the raclette machine is basically like a, a grill where. You get like a little a little pan and you put like an assortment of meats and veg on it and you put cheese on top and then you put it on the grill so the cheese all melts. That sounds pretty good. Sounds like a yeah, it's pretty good. middle middle class cheesy beano. <laughs> a cheesy beano? I've never heard that. You don't know what a cheesy beano is? It's Left like from Dundee. It should, sounds like it should be. It should be with the name like beano, I suppose. It's like at my primary school, this this is what primary this is what primary school dinners were like in the eighties. Mm-hmm. It was like half a roll with baked beans. We melted cheese, sealing the beans, the beans in. Fair enough. Yeah, that sounds like uh, the Scotch. <laughs> uh, what about um, New Year? What, what's your favourite drink to toast in? If, if I gave it away already with a mulled wine. Yeah, yeah, you can, David. It's uh, it's got to be mulled wine. Blue wine is the the best. If, if champagne is on offer, I wouldn't say no to uh, a bit of champagne for New Year's. But it's winter. I want something warm. I want something tasty. I am a sucker for. You know German style Christmas markets. I don't think there's actually any in Scotland that hold a hold a candle to um, ones in Germany. But winter comes around, and I have as much mulled wine as I possibly can. I, I quite like mulled wine. I was in Berlin is when I tasted it. I went to Berlin for a weekend in December, not with any concept of how cold Berlin in December uh-huh. apparently is. Uh, so me and my friends were running from sort of Christmas market to Christmas market, desperate to get another glouvide to just heat up and try to survive. Would you get it with a shot or do you just have it by itself? I didn't know you could get it with a shot, but I would probably, if that was on offer, I would I would have said yes, but I don't think it was offered, that, the yeah. massive cinnamon stick sticking at the top. There's also another thing, I can't remember what it's called now, uh, my mother keeps reminding me, but they do a, a, a similar thing 
where it's a hot drink and they kind of pour it over this giant block of sugar and it's like really sweet and really alcoholic. Sounds right up my street. Never heard of it, but it yeah. sounds right up they my street. They do it the same, the same stalls that they do mulled wine, but I only had it for the first time last Christmas. And let me tell you, really, really good. If, uh, if I ever remember what it is called, I'll tell you. Really sweet and really alcoholic. I've got a friend, Andy, that could fit that description. We've covered 2023. Let's look at 2024. What about um, any political predictions? Do I have to stay positive? No, no, we'll keep to the theme of depression. Yeah, all good. <laughs> um, well, I, th- I saw that Rishi Sunak finally described 2024 as election year. So I think the speculation of the election getting pushed to January 2025 is off. We'll definitely have an election next year. So um, I think that means we are looking at Keir Starmer becoming prime minister next year. And I think that'll be a disaster. And, you know, we're still going to have austerity. We're still going to have racist anti-immigration policies. Scotland, we're still going to have refusal of a second independence referendum. And, and based on the reaction to the... Um, Section 35, we're still going to see this kind of pressure on reversing devolution. And, I mean, I personally think the SNP is going to get a pretty awful beating in the election. See how it ends up, but I suspect it will be pretty brutal. But if nothing else, I think we'll we'll find out pretty quickly what exactly it means to have a Labour government in. Um, And I think that can only be good news to the independence movement. I don't really believe in the doom-mongering that the second Labour come in, no people want independence anymore. I think it'll actually probably be the opposite. Because right now you can pitch it as everything's going to be great and uh, reality will kick in. And then in Scotland, out with that, well, we've just seen the budget and it's pretty brutal for, for a lot in a lot of areas that are cut. Uh, I think especially housing has been singled out as an area that's got some pretty devastating cuts. So I think we should probably brace ourselves for a big round of public sector strikes in, in, in local councils in particular. You know, we already saw some this year in terms of like schools and nurseries. But if we have, if we have compulsory redundancies in any councils and if we have major closures like schools or libraries, then I think we, we could be looking at a lot of industrial action. And, uh, and quite right, I think if, if any council workers are coming out and strike next year, I'll be standing with them, obviously supporting them. Even though, you know, times are tough, the, the Scottish government, I feel, has... There's so there's so much cash sitting on the table in terms of tax raising powers that haven't been used. You know, there's a lot of discussion about how we should be taxing wealth, for example, through a land value tax. And it just doesn't seem to be happening because we're having this weird conversation now where you raise tax and over people making over seventy five thousand pounds and it's treated like you're you're punishing the little guy. That's gonna be a huge theme next year, I think. So we're gonna see austerity in a back and forth and hopefully a trade union movement that's willing to meet it. Yeah, there's been some absolutely willful ignorance about how tax codes work online mm. today. I think it was the national put out like a, a debunking thing saying you're not going to get forty five percent of your salary taken off you just with this announcement. Yeah. I, I mean I can't get my head around it because it's not like people don't pay tax and don't should have a reasonable understanding of how it works. You know, they look at their paycheck. So I, d- I don't get why people are so easily bamboozled in this. Maybe we should have a diagram and a pay slip or something. Instead of just having the line that says you've paid this much in tax, it should be a pie chart or something so people can understand. I don't know. Um, but I've been, it's it's so funny to me seeing people kind of tying themselves in knots saying, well, if you imagine this hypothetical scenario where all these five things are true, then your very modest £100,000 salary won't actually be that much, you know? It's ludicrous. And I mean, it's, it's also ludicrous to look at historically what income tax rates were in the UK. And uh, as recently as Thatcher, you know, you could have top marginal income tax rates that were closer to 80% than 50%. And yet people are freaking out about what we've got now. I always thought a 
console myself though with when there's these kind of freak outs that when it gets implemented and people realise that suddenly they're not going to be losing any more money or if it is it's very marginal that people will calm down and it'll be a short term sort of reaction and panic. The weird thing is it doesn't seem to stop it happening the next time. I guess we're just stuck in that cycle. There's uh, a point that's been made quite well that discussion of all these high earners are going to move to England. I think the point's been really well made is like there's not really many circumstances in which you'll save money by doing that because the cost of housing is so much greater there. So many other costs, and especially if you've, you're a parent, you've got kids that are going to university, etc., you're just going to lose out um, so much by doing that to save a few hundred pounds. But it's occasionally come up. I know that there's some senior Scottish lawyers who have said that they'll move over the border. And uh, I think, you know, the government should be more combative in, in, in challenging these people. I think, you know, if you're talking about a senior lawyer, skipping over the border to save tax. I think we should introduce a rule that just says if you don't live in Scotland, you can't practice in the Scottish courts. If you want to move to Berwick, that's fine, but you'll have to build up a practice in the Berwick courts and see how well that does for you. And also, we put too much stock in it. It's very easy for people to say, oh, well, I'll just move to England. And it's easy to say that, but how many people actually do it? How many people, every time an election say comes around, how many rich Tories say, oh, if a Labour government come in, I'm moving? You know, they're still there saying the same thing five years later. People do not move to save a wee bit of tax. The only people that do that are the mega rich that don't really live in a specific place anyway, and their change of address is really just a paper exercise. Before we finish up, um, I need to get you on record with your New Year's resolutions so we can hold you to account. <laughs> are you a person that normally makes resolutions? I kind of half, half-heartedly half make a resolution. I mean, it's to the point where I couldn't tell you what my resolutions were last year, if I even had any, or the year before that. And, you know, all the typical ones apply, you know, I want to be saving money better, I want to be exercising more, etc. But I think the, the one that I would actually really like to commit to, um, and that you're welcome to hold me to account to, is that I want to write more um, in the new year. And uh, I should clarify, because I am a full-time journalist, I mean, writing for not getting paid for it. <laughs> um, you know, writing about politics, writing about the left, writing for the independence movement. And um, something I really enjoy doing, I think it helps me work through my own thoughts and things. And I'm on the editorial board of a socialist magazine called Heckle. I want to really, uh, you know, I want to write some more um, for that. And I really want to take the time to, you know, maybe go and visit people in different parts of the country and find out what's going on there. Hopefully I can get started in that early in the year. Well, Ungagged will be happy to publish too, if you want yeah, to pick up your pen. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Connor. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, David. Have a, have a good Christmas and... Happy New Year when it comes. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you and the whole Gag team as well. The next item on the agenda this evening, there has been a change to the immigration rules in the UK. The UK government has introduced measures it promised would deliver the biggest ever cut in net migration after levels soared to a record high. Home Secretary James Cleverly announced a five-point plan to curb immigration, which he said was far too high. The changes include hiking the minimum salary needed for skilled work overseas workers from 26,200 to 38,700. Mr Cleverly claimed 300,000 people who were eligible to come to the UK last year would not be able to in future. The minimum income for family visas has also risen to 38,700. In a statement to MPs, the Home Secretary said migration to the UK needs to come down and that there has been abuse of health and care visas for years. However, crucially, health and care workers who account for almost half of people in work visas will be exempt from the increase. I mean, even before we get into the detail of this, it's it's just this thing that is, be- is becoming just 
accepted in UK politics that immigration is negative and is bad and is something to something to try and stop or mitigate. Immigration is natural. Every country in the world, every civilization, going back to the dawn of time, has had migration and people moving from one place to the other. That's how cultures evolve, that's how cultures change over time. It's it's not a static thing, this idea that people cling to of how the how their world or their country is meant to be. And how and lament the fact that it's different to how it was fifty years ago. That is every culture and society in the world, everywhere, ever has always changed over time. And the fact that nobody at the top of UK politics is willing to say that they go through this same charade about trying to cut immigration numbers just for the sake of it. I mean, this is the most anti-immigration government in, in decades, and yet they've just presided over a record number of immig- immigration and it just shows how much he, their rhetoric is nonsense and I think a lot of them would admit in private that they know it's true that, but they've ended up with this political ecosystem that it seems to play well and it seems to play well with people whose votes somehow are desired by the main political parties that oh, if you if you shout and bang the, the drum against immigration then, then, then that will get a good re- reaction a good response and good headlines from the psychopathic owners of or the right-wing newspapers. I mean, James Cleverly, I think he, I think his mother's from Sierra Leone. And I remember a while ago, Frankie Boyle talking about that, the, the fact that, you know, we have people in government who are the children of immigrants, or, or immigrants themselves, arguing against their own existence. Because a lot of people, a lot of the people making these arguments in the government are trying to implement rules that would have blocked the immigration of their own parents. And... It's hard to get your head around that kind of self-loathing. You know, the minimum income required for British citizens now, if you want to bring a foreign family member or a partner to live with them in the UK, it, it was 18,600 before, now it's 38,700 a year. And, and this, is a, this is slightly different because this actually attacks UK citizens as much as it's attacking immigrants because people fall in love. People fall in love when they're on holiday. Maybe people are abroad. Maybe people are visiting here. And if people fall in love, they should be able to live their lives together if that's what they want. But now that only happen if you're rich enough to make it happen. I mean, how many people earn thirty eight thousand seven hundred a year? You know, maybe to to more than double the minimum income. It's sadistic. You know, it to stop people living their lives together. People that, that have married and made the choice to live their lives together now won't because the rules made up by some petty-minded bigot in the, the Tory party and the overseas care workers, although it was saying they were they were changing, the they were making their exempts for some cases, but they will not be able to bring their partner and children with them anymore. You know, it's just, it's, it's somebody that works in social care. I have a lot of colleagues that are from different parts of Europe, uh, from Africa, from Asia. You know, and they're coming here and helping industry that is, is chronically understaffed. If, look at look at any social care charity's website and there will be a, a huge list of vacancies of jobs needing filled. So we need these people to come here to do their jobs. You know, that's not that's not up for debate. So we're asking them to help us out and then we're spitting in their face by saying, no, you're not bringing your family. You can come here, do the job and then piss off basically. Don't be, th- don't be thinking you're actually welcome here. Don't be thinking you can make this place your home. It's just and, and then we, we're going to think, well, we're going to expect them to come here. Britain's not the only country that people could go to. You know, they'll go somewhere else and they'll, they'll be care workers there. And they'll be caring for people there and they'll not be caring for people here. So who's who's missing out there? 
it's 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 not the would be immigrant. It's the the people in social care that require assistance, require help. The other ones that are getting hammered now with that with these new regulations. They're also increasing the the annual fee for visa holders to pay to use the NHS. It's known as the immigration health surcharge. It was six hundred and twenty four pound. Now it's over a thousand. Why should they not get access to the NHS for free the same as us? If they're here and they're working and they're paying tax, they're already contributing to the NHS. And it just seems like it's just an easy. It's like a shakedown, you know, they've got them over a barrel, so they're just slapping this on to just try and squeeze some more money at them, and it's it's distasteful, at the very least it's distasteful, and it's a cash grab, and you shouldn't treat people like this. Also, there's changes to the graduate visa, as it currently stands, someone can stay in the country for at least two years after they successfully complete their course, and now they're reviewing this, what came out of it, given the the noises and the the regulations they're already announcing, I don't think they're going to be increasing that time. I think they've got to be decreasing it. And is it not good to have smart people come to your country? That people are graduating in different university courses and getting qualified and things. Is it not good that they're hanging around to use their skills and their knowledge to benefit the UK? But as soon as they're graduating, we might be turning around telling them to get out. And, oh, it's so depressing. It really is depressing. We need we need to get out of this UK union. Scotland needs to get out of it. Because these things that, that are just becoming accepted, uncontested rules of political debate, and one of them is immigration is wrong, immigration is bad, and the Labour Party is not challenging it. The, the the Tories seem obsessed with it, and it's completely alien to how I think in my politics and I think of most people in Scotland. You know, we've got our bigots, we've got our right-wing, swivel-eyed lunatics that are obsessed with immigration, but they, they, don't, seem, they don't set the tone they don't set the terms of the debate. They're screaming in the fringes mostly, and that's where they should be. That's where they deserve to be. But we're a point. We've got people at the heart of the UK government just making sweeping changes to the immigration rules just to bring down some arbitrary number. I mean, what number's okay? What, what number will they be happy with? Is it zero? I think it might be zero. Maybe, maybe they're okay if you're a foreign billionaire or a millionaire. Would a millionaire be okay? Would they be allowed in? Because after all, they might have principles, but they all love money more than that. Maybe the Tories are alright with immigrants if they've got enough money in their pocket. Because after all, if they've got money in their pocket, that money might find their way into the Tories' pocket. That's the end of the podcast for this evening. I want to wish everybody that's listening a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year when it comes. Um, We'll be taking a short break now at the end of Season 6. We'll be back with Season 7 sometime in the spring. If you miss us between now, you can find all our previous podcasts at leftungag.org, as well as written articles. You can also sign up for our free newsletter and catch uh, back episodes of the Talking Sense podcast with Cat and Erin. And if you've got anything you want us to talk about next season, you can tweet us at un- underscore ungagged, hashtag Hollywood or drop us an email, ungaggedleft at gmail.com, putting Hollywood Ungagged in the subject line. And if you want to join our Thriving Signal group, then you can chat to us there and get involved with Ungagged. So just get in touch on any of our social media um, platforms. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us five stars on whatever podcast platform you use. Until then, have fun, be good and be lucky.